Welcome to Where Do You Exist, a storytelling podcast in collaboration with HBO and their new television series, Here and Now. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. Here and Now, from Oscar and Emmy Award winner Alan Ball, stars Tim Robbins and Holly Hunter and can be watched only on HBO. The new series is a provocative and darkly comic meditation on the disparate forces polarizing present-day American culture as experienced by the members of a progressive multi-ethnic family and a contemporary Muslim family headed by a psychiatrist who is treating one of their children. And what you're listening to right now is the sixth and final episode of Where Do You Exist, a six-part podcast miniseries recorded in front of live audiences in Portland, Oregon, Los Angeles, and New York City. Leaning into the themes of Here and Now, a diverse collection of local trendsetters share their most intimate true tales of family, identity, love, belonging, and finding one's way in the world. Today, you're going to hear three stories from New York City. Enjoy. All right, I'm so excited to bring up your first speaker. Uh, he is a comedian and an activist. He's a former producer of The Daily Show uh, with Trevor Noah and the author of the book, How to Be Black. Everyone, please welcome the one and only Baratunde Thurston. Our stories don't begin with us. People come from other people, at least until we can 3D print children. And I'm a person. So I come from two other people. My mother, Arnita Thurston. My father, Arnold Robinson. And for most of my life, I couldn't go back much further than that because the threads in my family tree were so frayed. The year was 1985 and my mother, Arnita Thurston, told me my father, Arnold Robinson, had been shot and killed. He was 35 years old. It didn't actually stun the entire life out of me only being seven years old, but also used to him not being in the house with us. He had been excommunicated for some unforgivable sins that I would learn about later in life. And this is the part of the story where the American urban blight narrative is supposed to take over, where I'm supposed to have trouble in school and trouble with the law and trouble in life, but spoiler alert, my childhood was dope. I had typical urban black boy experiences like camping and hiking and computing things. You know, fatherless black boy shit. My mother held it down. My sister's father also wasn't around and their absences were more than replaced by her super presence. And so I lived and move on. I escaped mass incarceration and found myself enrolled in a college in Massachusetts, graduating from Harvard University. The year was 2005, and my mother, Arnita Thurston, had just died from colon cancer. As my sister Belinda and I were going through her limited belongings, we stumbled across loose threads in our family history in the form of letters and journal entries and photos and those little teeny troll dolls. She loved the trolls. It's really <laughs> freaking me out. We came across a newspaper clipping that she had kept of her mother which announced that she was the first black employee to work in the U.S. Supreme Court building. We found a photo of our grandmother with President Jimmy Carter. And we had never heard of this before. Our mother never shared this with us because her relationship with her mother was so broken that we had to find this through the newspaper clippings of a deceased woman. I thought this would be the end of family secrets. 
and family surprises. Of course, I was wrong, because I'm just at the beginning of this story. The year was roughly 2007. I was in my cubicle, don't mean to brag, but I had a cubicle then. I was working in corporate America, helping corporate America extract more wealth from our klepto democracy when my landline office telephone rang. On the other end was someone telling me that my mother's father, Homer Thurston, had died. That there was a property that had been sold, that there was a pile of cash waiting to be distributed to my sister and me in light of our mother's passing and to her two half-siblings. Half-siblings we never knew about because she never knew about them. Now, my sister and I knew our mother would never have taken this money herself. She was purposefully estranged from her father. After all, he was the father who sexually abused her and her mother who turned the other way, choosing to believe her man over her daughter. So she didn't want that money. But she also didn't want debt-free children, and we remember that too. So we took the money <laughs> and put it to good use because Harvard isn't free. The year was 2009. My grandmother, Lorraine Martin, my mother's mother, had passed away. My sister had a much deeper relationship with her, having been partially raised by her, so she led the effort to collect the things, to close down the house, to deal with the estate. And as she was going through our grandmother's belongings, she found a newspaper clipping of our mother and me in the Washington Post doing a feature story about mothers struggling to help their young black boys survive in the mean streets of Washington, D.C. These two women who hadn't spoken in decades kept newspaper clippings of each other and helped keep alive a tenuous thread that was seriously frayed. The year was 2014. I was spending time as obligated to on the birthday reminder service and global ad-supported surveillance network known as Facebook. <laughs> I found this secret area called the other inbox. These are messages that the algorithm deems unworthy of human consumption. I consumed. And I found several messages from a woman claiming to be my cousin on my father's side, on the Robinson side. And she said, you got family and we just want to meet you. Why don't you come over to my house? And I said, why don't we meet in a public place like a hotel lobby? Because I have seen too many Jason Bourne movies. And just because you can create a Facebook account doesn't mean you're blood. So let's ease into this. And we met and she brought photos and love and beautiful memories. The year was 2015, and it was an unofficial Robinson family reunification. Me, Grandma Robinson at 91 years old, two uncles, several cousins, and one of my best friends for good measure and for security in case we had to break out of there <laughs> because I still watch too many Jason Bourne movies. I don't know how this is going to go down. We met at an Italian restaurant in Bethesda like all black families do when they're reconnecting with each other. <laughs> They had pictures, they had family trees, they had my father's program from his funeral. We all had tears. And they had a ton of questions. It was a massive interrogation because I'm semi-public and have a strong social media presence. And so they had some unilateral access to me and it was slightly creepy. I'm just gonna put that out there. They knew where I had been and who I was with and is that your wife and do you have babies? Uh, no and no. 
it struck me that my father's death wasn't his alone. That the Robinson family had died to me and I to them. That when someone dies, they don't just die, but these threads also become more distant and maybe fade away. The year was 2017, and I decided to interview my grandmother at a sports bar named Jasper's over barbecue chicken wings and celery and dip. And she told me a little about my father, things I had not known, that he started a lot of businesses but rarely finished them, that he had demons, which I did know, that he was in the Navy but avoided Vietnam, that he was well-liked and had charisma, clearly, that he thought my mother was the smartest person he had ever met, which was the ultimate proof that we were related. And I learned about this grandmother born in 1925, a level of family historical access I had never had before. Orangeburg, South Carolina, one of six children, living on a farm owned by their father, a rare thing in 1920s America. She had some schooling, but it was in and out. The out due to the fact that they had to harvest not just their land, but the land of the white families who were their neighbors, who children she went to school with, she missed at school to harvest their parents' land, you see, because their father needed credit extended by the white-owned businesses, and to pay that, to have access to that, he had to give up his children's unpaid labor and opportunity cost of missed education. is double involuntary taxation, which is not recognized in any IRS forms. There's would have been reparations by now if we had just figured out, don't call it reparations, call it a tax refund. We're owed that. Grandma Robinson moved to Washington, D.C. She got married. Her husband worked for Amtrak. She worked for the U.S. Information Agency. And I started to see these threads come back together. My mother's mother working in the judiciary. My father's mother working in the executive. My own childhood with my mother spent days and days in every state on the East Coast in Amtrak trains that a grandfather I didn't know worked for. A mother who became a computer programmer for the very federal government that the two women that created her and her partner also worked for. These threads started reconnecting through culture, through story, through pain, through loss, through coincidence. And out of all of this, the family member I've emerged closest to is my sister the one that I started with, the other Thurston kid. And now I have another family to keep growing with and learning from, questions to ask about the Robinsons, about the Thurstons, about the people who allowed me to be me, to be continued. Thank you. Your next speaker uh, coming up here is gonna be part of an interview. Uh, she is a writer. Uh, a director and a producer, also the creator of a documentary based on her own life. Everyone, please welcome Lacey Schwartz, everybody. I, you have this documentary, Little White Lie, which is amazing, and I recently watched it. And um, so walk us through your story. You were born in upstate New York. Yeah, hi. I grew up in Woodstock, New York. Okay. Um, and I was born to two white Jewish parents. Um, and grew up very much in, kind of immersed in that culture in every way. And for those of you who are familiar with Woodstock, which is very much kind of a, in many ways, a bastion of white liberalism, you know, and kind of what it represents. And I grew up and at the age of 18 found out that my biological father was black. 
And so my film, Little White Lie, that I made is about family secrets and uncovering my dual identity and learning how to live with that. So this whole time until you were 18, you thought you were white? Yes, is the short answer. <laughs> I mean, I think the longer answer is, is that I was very aware from a younger from a young age that I was quote-unquote different, yeah. um, that there were things about me and there were stories that were told about how you know, I looked and why I looked the way I did and kind of the family story that was going around was that, that my great-grandfather was Sicilian, dark-skinned Sicilian, and that was who I looked like. And so I grew up in many ways in, a, in an area where you know, fundamentally I feel like was very much people you know, kind of progressive liberal parents. And, you know, everybody kind of was on the right side of the issue, but we fundamentally weren't really digging into difference and acknowledging difference in any sort real way. So your family were protecting you from the secret, but did other families have questions for you? Yes, they did. And I'm sure, you know, I think it's very much I grew up in a bubble, so in my immediate circle, people weren't necessarily addressing those questions, but when I would go out you know, into the world, I would get various questions. And kind of the farther I went from kind of my nuclear family, I would get more and more questions. And when did you find out? So, when I, so my parents split up when I was 16. And around that time, I really started realizing that something wasn't right. And I really think that my story, like many people's stories, is about the power and the incredible strength of denial. That you can convince yourself first to believe what you want to believe, even more so than you're actually consciously lying to other people. And so for a long time, I think I had been very much living in this kind of space of learned denial. Within my family, when my parents broke up, it was very hard to continue that. And so when I applied to college, I was at that point where I was not really fully ready to have a conversation with my parents, but also at the same time was no longer comfortable uh, kind of checking a box and saying that I was white. So I didn't check any boxes when I applied to college. And my, I went to Georgetown University and they asked you to submit a photograph, which I did, and they admitted me as a black student based off of that photograph. They decided for you. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to Georgetown and kind of had this black... It was a got a letter uh, inviting me to the Black Student Union and in a sense spent a year very much, in a sense, like really trying on this identity that was for the first time walked into these spaces. And um, when I came home from my freshman year of college, I sat down with my mother and had a conversation with her about why I really looked the way I did. That's incredible. Um, so you're socialized Jewish, pretty much. You go to Georgetown. Have you, did you hang out with black kids growing up? No, I mean, first of all, in Woodstock, there weren't, there weren't that many black kids growing up. In Woodstock, I, and part of my story, as it does follow in the film, is at one point I did start dating somebody who was black biracial. And he was a crucial part of being that person in my ear saying, come on, girl. Like, let's talk about it. In the documentary, um. you guys, in the documentary, <laughs> they look related. It's like, you guys look like brother and sister. And you said people would confuse you as brother and sister. Yeah. Did you ever look at Lenny Kravitz and you're like, maybe he's my brother too? <laughs> Did you ever have that type of... You know, I felt the connection. You were like, I felt the you know, connection. his songs aren't that bad. They're pretty good. <laughs> Did you feel well, some Let sort Love of kinship? Rule was amazing. Yeah, it's a good song. Great song. Uh, but then you hung out with black people for the first time in college. And so... You, did you kind of come out of the closet? Did you like hyper identify as black? I'm, this is so. You know, I worked through it. I mean, I worked through it as I do talk about in the film. It's like, how do, how do you discover that? You know, how do you kind of come into your own? And I do think that for me, I very much gained a racial consciousness because, as I said, I grew up in a space where everyone was on what I would consider to be the right side of an argument. But at the same time, there was a lot of issues around difference that we really didn't talk about. We really did gloss over it in every way. And I realized that although I was 
you know, I am very into counting my blessings and counting my privileges and feel like, you know, one of the biggest privileges I've experienced is coming from a loving and supportive family, but nonetheless a family that fundamentally did not acknowledge my difference. And it took a while to kind of work through that and to get into a healthier place with it. Yeah. How did you regain their trust after that? You know, I, did, I, I made a film. <laughs> you know, I did the work. I think fundamentally I got to a point where, you know, I was at that point in my uh, late 20s, early 30s, and I realized that I was, at a, I was at a really big kind of point in my life where I could justifiably be a victim and continue on with my life and be angry at my family, or I could do the work to try to heal that for myself and to release that pain so that I could move forward in a healthy place. And I realized that fundamentally if I was going to be the victim, the person I was going to hurt the most was myself. And so it was worth doing the work to move forward. That's really beautiful. I think that's a really tough thing to probably have had to do and to go in there and do the work. It's like, it's very inspiring. Like all of our families, I feel like lie to, uh, Maybe they're scared how we're going to react to things. And from watching your film, it made me think about my own family and stuff they've hid from me. And it made me, it seems like there's a real opportunity which you've taken that we could all draw from, which is to um, be honest with your family. Expose who you really are, who you really need, and tell each other you know, who you really are. And that's, I mean, that's what I gained from the film and I thought it was very beautiful. Well, I really appreciate that and I totally believe in that. I mean, I think too many of our existence are stigmatized, you know, and where we grow up with feeling almost a guilt around who we are and that's just unfortunate. We have to really work to not make sure that the norms in the world that we exist in is not about one person over the other and that, you know, fundamentally we all have our as we say, Michigas, um, <laughs> but so that we, you know, we all have our baggage and we could just move forward with it and not be embarrassed about it. Yeah, that's really beautiful. How about a big round of applause for Lisa? Thank Sports, you. Everybody. Thank you so much. That was so great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Your last storyteller, John Henry, joined us in the studio as a featured guest on this miniseries. He's a Dominican-American entrepreneur partner of startup accelerator Harlem Capital, and host of Open for Business, a podcast about building businesses from the ground up. So um, I'm originally from uptown New York City, raised in a town called Washington Heights, which is predominantly Dominican neighborhood. Um, in fact, it's so Dominican, you don't even need to know English to get around. And so a lot of folks who immigrate to the U.S. from the Dominican Republic end up um, going to uh, Washington Heights. I'm the youngest of four. So there were six of us coming up between my mom and dad and all the four kids. And we lived in a tiny one-bedroom apartment. So this this little room in Washington Heights that I had that I shared with three other siblings, it was a, a pressurized wall. So it was a, a, essentially a constructed wall in the, that ran right through the middle of my living room. And it did not go all the way up to the ceiling. So, um, and having a Dominican mom who at the time cooked three times a day, um, you know, all those smells and stuff and, and all the bachata music playing, like everything made its way into the room and zero privacy because you can hear everything every which way. And, um, you know, those days were joyful for me, um, but certainly you never had your own space. You know, you're there. I was sharing a bunk for Christ's sake literally sharing a bunk. And so anyway, um, 
you know, not having your own room in your early childhood is not a big deal at all. In fact, um, it's especially not a big deal when everyone around you also comes from humble beginnings. But fast forward, um, shortly after 9-11, my parents decided to uh, move to Florida. They wanted to try something new um, and they wanted to make sure that um, they kind of wanted to minimize the risks and the kind of the things that city street life exposes you to if you're coming from, if you're in a tougher neighborhood. And so we moved to Florida. And so my mom uh, got a gig as a custodian um, for the school district. Um, And she happened to be a custodian in a kind of a nicer neighborhood in Florida. The whole, the region is called the Treasure Coast. um, And specifically the town was called Jensen Beach. We lived outside of the town, but because my mom worked in the school district, part of the benefits that they allow you as an employee is that your kids can go to school in that school district. I spent all four years during my high school times in a pretty affluent town, is an upper middle class town. After a while, we moved into that neighborhood. We moved to like the brokest part of, of the nice neighborhood. Um, you know, it was super clear all of a sudden that I did not have the latest clothes. I, you know, I was into playing guitar then and I had like a used Fender knockoff. At every turn, I was reminded that, you know, socioeconomically, it was just, we were just not on par. You know, simple things like I didn't have a car and in Florida, especially this part of Florida, like you need a car to get around. So I would always need to get a ride. And sometimes it was even uncomfortable because I can remember being like sleeping over my friend's homes. And by the way, these were lavish, lavish homes, like, like giant, like to give you an idea, these homes, there was a a tree house I can remember in my friend's house that had a zip line that like zipped all the way down the lawn towards a pool with a disappearing edge. And it had like an underwater bar at the pool and it had like a music room and a pool, a pool table room. The juxtaposition was so wild. It wasn't even like I went to a regular middle-class town. It was like, holy shit. All of a sudden, everyone around me seemed to be crazy rich. And like my friend's parents would be, they would, you know, empathize with me or sympathize with me and like, you know, offer me extra food and stuff like that. And like, I didn't go hungry in the, in our home. Like my mom cooked every night. Um, but that was the impression that I think they got and like, it made me uncomfortable. Um, so the way that my family is set up is I have two older siblings and then there's a 10 year gap and then there's two brothers. So at this point, by the time we moved to Florida, my two oldest siblings were uh, kind of on their own. It was me and my brother kind of sharing um, this extra, this room, the second bedroom. We, we gr- kind of moved up to a two-bedroom apartment at this point. Um, anyway, as time went on and I got older, having your own room just became more important. <laughs> Especially like as you start thinking about girls, um, like, man, you, you start having crush on people and then like around, you know, freshman year, sophomore year, you start hearing more talk about, you know, having sex and I was wanting to mac on chicks, but one thought kept coming to my mind and I was like, wow, like, where would this happen? Like, I don't have my own room and these girls, 
it's probably not okay for them to bring someone back. And so I kind of kept running into this scenario. And even aside from the girls, like you can't hang out in your apartment when you don't have your own room because like there's always someone there in your family. And then like you never feel like you can be yourself with your family just lingering there. And it's a very small apartment. And so this this persisted the whole time I was in high school. And uh, it wasn't until the very, very end, like I, it, it was my senior year and my parents had worked their way up to like low or mid-level manager positions in their jobs. And we finally, we moved into a house for um, the first time. And I, uh, I finally had my own room. It was wonderful. Um, I like hung up pictures of Miles Davis. And in those times I was like reading a lot about Malcolm X and I like, it was the way that I wanted it. And I called it the lounge and it was like, awesome. Except this house was like, well, be well outside of the town where I was going to school in because it was just more affordable that way. And, um, as life would have it just a few months into having my own room, turns out when you're a kid, your parents don't tell you everything and adult stuff happens. And my dad lost his job and it was tied to, um, our immigration, uh, situation and essentially overnight everything that my parents had was stripped Um, and my parents, they went to the homes of relatives where they felt comfortable and my brother and I stayed in this town and I had to, um, finish high school. And so I stayed in this town and I moved in with my girlfriend and I had a little apartment to myself after graduating high school. Um, and given the predicament that I was with my family and everything, I figured there's nothing tying me here. So if I'm going to, you know, struggle, um, to maintain an apartment, like I might as well go up and do that in a city that I love and try and, uh, exert everything I can into this. And so I moved to New York city. It was my brother and I, and my pops met us up there. And I remember, um, my pops, uh, was able to secure uh, a little apartment in guess what neighborhood, Washington Heights. It was literally, literally like walking down memory lane. When I stepped back into New York City, all of a sudden I was 18 years old. Um, and so I was just beginning my you know adult life. And I was walking through the same streets years and years and years ago where I had grown up. And there were six of us in a one-bedroom apartment, four of us um, in, a, in one bedroom. And um, thinking about how when I was in Jensen Beach, I was in some ways ashamed um, and resentful of the fact that my parents um, they speak limited English and they didn't work nice jobs and they couldn't get me nice things. And now it's it's kind of a beautiful twist of life where um, now when I touch base in New York City, um, by the way, my, my pops, um, as I mentioned, got a little apartment for us and it was a one bedroom again. So here we go back to n- not having your own room. And this time it was my brother and my father and I splitting one bedroom and there was nothing 
in that apartment and my pops had an air mattress um, that that we, the three of us, slept on um, an empty floor. I could not be more overjoyed to split that mattress with my brother and my pops. Fortunately, now I have my uh, you know, own apartment in Harlem. It's a two-bedroom. Now I have a spare room. <laughs> now it's kind of wild. I, I didn't even think about it just now, but now I have a spare room. I have a little home office and then uh, I have a home, little home that I can, you know, invite my parents over to and, and uh, invite them for dinner and stuff like that. I feel like being broke and starting from nothing and not having my own room um, has essentially, it's been a chip on my shoulder um, that for a long time haunted me. And now I understand that it is absolutely, in a way, my motivation to um, forget having your own room. I want to buy my parents, you know, their own mansion. Where Do You Exist is produced by Little Everywhere in collaboration with HBO's Here and Now, produced by Alan Ball, Peter McDesey, and David Noller. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. 